Welcome to The Root of the Matter, brought to you by UPL. This podcast is dedicated to bringing you fresh ideas and insights about agriculture in North America. I'm your host, Ken Root. Today we're going to go to California and we're going to talk with an almond grower. Um, Many of us have eaten almonds and love them, but we really don't know a lot about how they are produced. They are a crop that can be pretty sustainably produced, and the growers now are headed toward that goal. And UPL, which underwrites this program, has um, awarded its first ally in agriculture for the purpose of sustainability uh, to our guest for the day, and we'll hear more about that program. And if you'd like to nominate someone to be an ally for agriculture, based upon what we're going to talk about, we'll give you a way to do so a little bit later on. Christine Gipperly, second generation of an almond farm um, in the Central Valley of California. Christine, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me here today. I know a little bit about your background, so let me ask you this question. Which came first, the almond or the egg? Oh, that's a good question, because you know that my family also um, does some poultry farming. So the egg actually came first. Uh, My uncle came over in the 1940s and then brought my dad over and they started the poultry operation. And when they built the houses, they bought land and they needed to farm something around that chicken houses. And so they started putting in almonds and it was a nice buffer, you know. You're the second generation now. Do you farm with anyone else? My brother is my business partner on our small farm. My uncle's boys, they took over the poultry and the almond operation that was associated with my uncle and my dad. And then my brother and I just branched out on our own. Now, almonds have risen like pistachios and a few other tree nuts. And I'm wondering why. What is it about almonds that makes them attractive for you to think you've got a future in growing them? Well, there's a couple of reasons. First of all, the almond itself is super nutritionally dense. And it's actually what I like to say, it's like a blank canvas when it comes to eating and cooking. There's so many, it's so versatile. There's so many things you can do with it. I mean, you of course there's snacking nuts, right? But you can make butters, flour, we, you know, we know, know about almond milk now. It's just sky's the limit on almonds. So farming is getting really hard to make a profit off, right? The unit profit per acre is actually going lower and lower. I would say for farmers all across the board, it's not easy out there. And so a lot of people have switched to almonds because maybe they have smaller acreage or they were farming something that wasn't profitable, but they want to keep the land, they want to keep farming, and almonds became that option for a lot of people, especially in the dairy industry, you know, when milk prices were bad, and and thing and regulation made things really hard, so it, it was kind of this natural, you know, transition for people who wanted to keep farming, but needed to actually see a profit. Are almonds an almost totally mechanized crop? I I know, but from your background, you don't have much labor that you utilize. Are you almond farming because you can do it from the seat of a tractor or from uh, a machine that takes care of what the labor would have done? 
That is true because Eric and I, that is my brother, we have 135 acres and we don't have any employees and we do it all ourselves. That is a little bit unusual, but the truth is it's totally doable um, because we have, a, you know, the tractors have all these implements that do work at harvest time. There's a, a machine that my brother drives that shakes the trees and then I go and sweep them with the sweeper and then we have a harvester that picks them up and I shuttle them back with the tractor and the trailer. So yes, actually it's very mechanized. So it, it's also, you know, that makes it also a very labor efficient crop as well, which was another thing that made it very attractive. I'll tell you this though about the equipment. That equipment, since it's so specialized, is very expensive. You guys call them Ammons. <laughs> well, there's Ammons and then there's Almonds. So the story on that is if you're in the north part of the valley, there's like a dividing line in the center of California. And if you're north of that, you say Ammons. And if you're south of that, you say Almonds. So some people like to say, I guess, in the north that you um, shake that L out of them. But in the south, I like to say, because I'm right in the middle and we go both ways. I like to say, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's always a joke in that. Um, and I, I love it that uh, you can have a little fun with the, the name. But almonds are what they're called across the world, except that right there in that area where that they're called almonds by the, by the locals. You know, those of us in the Midwest, we envy you in some ways in California. And we are glad we're not you in some other ways, if you'll take that the right way because you have such a capability for diverse high value crops at the same time you're in a drought uh, your amount of water is very precarious now and you've got a state that regulates you beyond belief as far as those of us on the outside looking in and the impact of your state not just there but across the nation is truly amazing on what its regulations can actually impose on a on a poultry producer in south dakota for example that if you're going to sell eggs into California, they've got to meet California standards. But we don't want to lose California agriculture. I think that's the bottom line for Americans. We'd be a lot worse off without your products than you would be without ours. But are you concerned that California is doing its best to cause many of you to either stop farming or go somewhere else and do your farming? You know, that's a huge discussion right now and a very legitimate one because it isn't easy kept, you know, farming in California for many reasons. Yes, the regulation does make it hard. The flip side of that, though, is that when people from outside think of California produce, they're like, well, it's safe. It's coming from California. Right. So we do get that. The water issue is a big issue issue and that is something that california really needs as a whole like everybody in california really needs to decide what is a good use of california's water climate change has made it very difficult because we have these feast and famine cycles um and you know we have this infrastructure that uh, is not set up for that. You know, it's set up for a lot of snow during the winter and slow melt, not these big rain events that we're seeing. I think it is possible for California to figure out its water situation if we continue in this feast and famine cycle, but we're going to have to be really creative and everybody's going to have to give. And I mean, 
everybody, people in the cities and farmers too. Um, and we're going to have to strike a balance where we can still make it all work. Because the truth is we have this amazing climate here that allows for us to produce all these different vegetables, wonderful soils, diverse soils to allow all that. And we're actually able to produce a lot of these crops with actually less chemicals or less protective materials because we don't get the rains that bring in damage and fungus, you know, fun fungal diseases like you might see elsewhere. So it still does make a lot of sense to grow in California. You um, try to be a sustainable farmer or is that a goal of yours to be more sustainable each year to please the regulator and to uh, lower your cost? And if so, how are you going about it? Sustainability, yeah, that's a big word. And it's, it's a moving target, first of all, because the more we learn, the more we change up what we do to adjust to that, to become more sustainable or to stay sustainable, right? Um, we, I, the bottom line is, you want to use the least amount of input on your crop as possible, whether that's, you know, protective materials or water or time in the field, right? Because that just makes you more financially stable. Uh, it doesn't make any sense to waste water when it costs as much as it does. So sustainability for us is using exactly what we need when we need it to produce the best crop that we can. And at that same time, we're really still building our soils and really ensuring that there is a future in farming in California. Because honestly, the first thing, I mean, you have to sustain the farmer first and foremost, because they're the one doing the work. The land is not gonna farm itself. Would you give me the cycle? uh annually of almonds uh, because i know that they are a tree crop i know that they've got to be insect pollinated so what uh, time of year if you'd start with january or when the first uh, bloom comes out do things happen and uh what's your you know most challenging time of year well it all starts in around February when the first blossoms come out. And before, about two weeks before that, most of the beekeepers from across the United States have moved their bees into California to pollinate that crop. We each, most of the trees in California are not self-fertile. And so you are, you have several, you know, one to three varieties of trees in your orchard so that there's cross-pollination to produce that nut. So we have our beautiful bloom, um, which is wonderful. I mean, if we get rain, you know, we do have to protect the crop, but if we don't get rain, there's no need to. And in the spring, the trees start to leaf out, you know, in April, we might put on our first irrigation, depending on whether we've gotten rain or not. We, if we have cover crop, we're letting that grow, or if it's getting, to the mature point, we're starting to mow that sort of thing down. Um, all through May, June, and July, we're watching those trees grow and develop um, the, that crop. 
and we're just kind of watching to make sure we don't have insect populations coming through. And then we get to a time when the nut actually splits, usually a late June, beginning of July, depending where you are in the state. And that's probably, a, that's a real critical time because there's a, a pest called the navel orange worm and it can come in and go right where that nut starts to split and lay an egg and that produces a little caterpillar that will eat your nut. So that's something we definitely have to watch out for. Right about now, in fact, we're gonna start this weekend is harvest. And that's when we start, like I said, shaking those trees, sweeping them, picking them up. In the fall, we're pruning um, any dead wood out, you know, planting cover crops, getting ready for things to sort of shut down for winter. And, and then in winter, you'd think things are quiet, but actually now that we're doing a lot of what we call orchard sanitation, in order to reduce that pest population in California, they overwinter in the nuts that remain on the trees. We don't leave much on the trees, but there's few, and it's just enough to harbor that pest. And so we're shaking those trees again in the middle of winter and getting those, we call them mummy nuts on the ground, and then we go through with a mower and destroy them. So it's, and if you're gonna be planting new trees, that's when you're getting busy with, you know, replanting trees. You mentioned well. the bees and bees are having a tough go. Farmers are having a tough go and the bees too. Are you finding that either you can't get enough bees or they cost a whole lot more money for you to use them for pollination? You know, there's a lot going on with bees these days. I'm also on the board of Project Apis M, which does a lot of research for beekeepers, but also does the Seeds for Bees program for cover cropping. So I, I'm pretty well versed in this area. It is more expensive, and that's because beekeepers are having a hard time managing their, their colonies because of the varroa mite. Um, which is an invasive pest, been very bad for the beekeeping community. And we really haven't gotten a hold on controlling it yet. There are some promising things though. The beekeepers are having to actually increase their treatments to keep their colonies healthy. And that's a lot of cost to them. And so that does get transferred over to the growers for needing them to come in. Every year, there always is that fear that there might not be enough colonies, but um, so far we've been able to get what we needed, but definitely at a cost, that is for sure. What percent increase have you seen in the uh, cost per hive of bees that are placed on your land for pollination? Would you share that with us? Oh yeah, so, I mean, gosh, when, when, my, when I was like, First starting, I think it was, I don't know, like $50 a colony. And my dad used to say like, I remember when it was, you know, $35. And, and now it's upwards of um, 200, 225. There's kind of been a little bit different. They've kind of moved to a different way of evaluating hives and what their value is. Because the truth is, it really doesn't matter how many colonies that you have on your property. It's how many active frames of bees flying out of the colony. That's what matters. And so you could have a colony with six frames in it, or that's, <laughs> and it is definitely not worth as much as a colony with 12 active frames in it. 
some people are using that framework, haha, pun, <laughs> to um, determine their price. You're talking cover crops. Why are you laying down a cover crop? I mean, in the Midwest, we're all about cover crops now on our big fields for the obvious reasons of erosion and then the potential for other things. But why are cover crops good in an almond orchard? Well, this is something we have discovered a lot um, about in the last 10 years. Originally, I put those cover crops in and it was all about providing forage for my beekeepers bees before the bloom actually opened because you wanted those bees to be um, healthy and you wanted them active and to get them active and to get the queen laying eggs, which is what makes all the bees go out to forage you needed to get them started on something to wake up that hive. And so we were putting in that mustard for that reason. And then we were also realizing that clover was great, but clover didn't bloom before the almond bloom. And that was ended up being something that was there for the bees afterwards. And so you were providing this diverse, you know, this diverse forage for the bees. And it didn't compete with the almond blooms, which was great, um, that was always sort of a, a myth or a worry that was out there. But along the way, we discovered all these extra things that the cover crop was actually doing for the orchard. Of course, with any sort of clover, it's nitrogen fixing. And so you're adding to the soil. And then the roots on some of these mustards, um, they were helping with water infiltration, building organic matter in the soil, even actually helping with our beneficial insect population that actually took out some of our other pests. So it's, it's just sort of been this journey with cover crops where we're just learning more and more how they actually benefit the orchard. And it's not just for the bees anymore. Christine Gipperly, who is an almond grower, Central Valley of California. People are calling this program, the Allies for Agriculture unsung heroes, but you know, after listening to you, I, I just feel a quiet competency that you have. I mean, you know your job, you're trying new things, you're moving forward, you're trying to be sustainable, depending on how we define that, and you've been recognized for it, and I'm glad of that because clearly it shows that it's your life. What has happened since the Allies for Agriculture program came about? Has it given you a little more confidence that uh, UPL said uh, you're our first winner? You know, I think the greatest thing about it, and when I first got it, I was like, what is this? What is all this? You know, <laughs> um, but the fact is they are recognizing people that are really sticking their neck out to try different things, to solve problems, and, and really to bring Agri the rest of agricultural forward and along, you know, into this space where we're just constantly growing, okay, another pun, um, <laughs> and moving to meet that moving target of what sustainability is. And it's, the more you recognize people that are doing stuff, the more that the other growers that are out there are gonna listen in. Because if nobody ever talks about them, they're never gonna hear about it. They're never gonna be inspired. They're never gonna be the person that says, oh, I wanna do that. She's doing that and this is what it's doing for her or he's doing that and look how successful he is. And, and, and that's how we, we get momentum with 
with all that we're doing here because what we do matters and it makes a difference, but it, it's better if we can do it at a larger scale. I ask you a little bit about you. Uh, background, uh, do you have an education in agriculture? Any of the universities of California have been graced by, you, by your presence? The University of California, yes. Was it a degree in agriculture? No, I went into straight up biology. And then, this is really interesting. I, got a, I went to work for the Forest Service and I got involved with UC Davis's um, fish lab and limnology lab up in Lake Tahoe. And I ended up getting a research assistantship in the fisheries program at Utah State University. So I have a master's in fisheries. <laughs> so, which actually gives me a great perspective on water issues. And I feel like it gives me, I, I've definitely been on the environmental side of it, everything. And I come from the agricultural side and now I'm back in agriculture. And so I feel like I have a really balanced view and hopefully that people like me can help us get to this place where the whole system finds a balance where we can all work with each other and actually solve some problems instead of just duking it out. Technology. Now, as I recall, that's the study of fresh water, of everything that goes along with right. that. And their biology sense. degree, I consider that equivalent to, you know, highly specialized, like a lot of people are in agriculture today, but equivalent to other type of agricultural degrees that would put you in the right perspective to understand what you're doing. California, to me, seems to say to everybody in agriculture, you are degrading the quality of our water. Am I accurate in, in the state's saying that or in the fact that that if you use water do you degrade the water or do you have the capability of of at least breaking even with that water as you utilize it and let it go well like i said you know we're always learning and so you know for years and years and years, we flood irrigated the valley. And so we actually, what we were always doing was flushing and actually contributing to the groundwater. But as we you know, became more and more efficient and started using micro irrigation and, and be you know, really precisely watering our crops and saving water, which was actually good, we weren't doing that flushing anymore. So in some ways, by being super efficient, we've taken away one of the tools that actually, uh, you know, helps with our groundwater and quality situation. So we're learning those things now. And I'm hoping, you know, we've also learned that flooding uh, our fields, our, our orchards during the winter actually helps bring back part of that process. So, you know, possibly during our big wet, you know, storm events, we can go back to doing some of that and striking that balance between during the summer having very efficient irrigation and then bringing in during these flood events that same process. So I wouldn't say we've degraded the water, but we've changed how it moves through the soil. And we probably need to get back to some of, we need a combination of both. Does your water come from uh, wells or do you get some of it coming in from canals? Actually, the bulk of our water, we barely use our wells at all. We've always had them as 
as our, what we call our emergency backup, right? So if something's going on in the canal, we can't get water, um, we have that option. Or when there isn't water in the canal during the winter and we have a freeze event that we need to protect during the bloom or something, we're able to turn that on to warm up that space. But actually all of our water comes from the Sierras. Our local water district, Turlock Irrigation District has a very large reservoir up there, probably water richest irrigation districts in the state. And then on another piece of property, our water comes from um, Lake Shasta through the federal water program. Although we haven't, we've actually had zero water allotments from them for years and we've had to find water elsewhere, but we personally are not well dependent. Are you uh, concerned about the future of your water supply that it could go to urban centers and not go to agriculture? Oh, a hundred percent. I mean, really what people don't realize for everybody, farmers get cut off first, you know, before anybody in any urban area ever needs to stop watering their lawn or take, you know, note of how long their showers are. Well, farmers have already been cut. We've already gone down to like 40%. You know, it's it can be frustrating. And I know that urban doesn't use as much as agriculture, but you have to think about it. In agriculture, what are we doing with water? We are growing food to put in all those refrigerators in urban areas. And when you think about, you know, California and the kind of crops that we're growing, think about it. When you open your refrigerator, how much of that is coming from California? Think about what your refrigerator looks like or in your vegetable drawer and even you know your dairy products if you don't grow in California. It's substantial. 145 acres of almonds, but is it big enough? Are you going to have to expand to be able to stay on the farm? I'm so glad you asked this question. Because when Eric, Eric and I have been doing this since 1998 and 135 acres was actually good enough to support our two families for quite some time. But recently, as we've gone more into this climate change and drought space where water has become very expensive. And of course, now that we've seen at this price with inflation and the war in Ukraine that, you know, everything is skyrocketing. 135 acres doesn't support us anymore. And at one point, Eric and I thought about expanding about 10 years ago. And we said, no, because we don't want to take on an employee. I mean, we were just at that breaking point, like, you know, and we're just like, we want to keep our lives simple. You know, it's not a, it's about quality of life, not the quantity. And we just made that decision to stay small and be able to do it ourselves. Do I regret that now? Actually, I don't regret it now. Um, but, you know, the situation that we're in is why a lot of smaller and mid-sized farmers actually farm and have jobs or some like, or the wife works because they need that extra income. I don't think people realize how many small farmers actually have completely separate incomes from something else. Well, you're no different than uh, any other part of the country of people realizing that they have to have uh, 
a growing size operation or they have to reduce their cost in the operation uh, or they have to get outside jobs uh, to bring mm-hmm. in uh, uh, their real uh, profit, their real income that goes to the bottom line. As we wrap up here, may I ask you about your involvement in organizations? Do you uh, actively involve yourself in an almond growers organization? And are you doing any other uh, traveling and speaking or anything about your views of agriculture, which I love to hear, and how that you relate to the land and how the land and you are taking care of each other? That might be a great side hustle, actually. <laughs> Speaking. <laughs> but I am really involved in the industry. Um, a year ago, I've been an alternate on the Almond Board of California for several years. And then a year ago, I was seated as a full board member. So I am one of um, 10 people that is helping to shape our industry as we move forward. I'm also on the board of what I said before, Project Apis M. And I'm really happy to be on this board because they started this, the cover cropping seeds for bees program in California. And it's actually, they work all over the United States um, promoting cover cropping. So those are two loves of mine. I have done some speaking. Um, I do get called by reporters a lot and I've just been asked to speak at our local junior college. And there's been a couple other little things. I was actually um, featured on um, American Grown, which is a PBS special. And then recently, um, just this last week, I and this was something that happened in 2020 that was filmed, but I made it into the Green Planet uh, BBC series in the final episode. So um, it's pretty cool, actually, to be in, in, in the same footage as like David, Sir David Attenborough, you know. Well, I am about- glad you're getting that recognition. But more than that, I'm glad you're telling your story. And uh, UPL is as well. And I think that's uh, a major reason why that you were uh, selected as the first winner of the Allies in Agriculture. I also understand they gave you uh, an opportunity to uh, give $1,000 to the food bank of your choice. Yes, that was wonderful to be able. It was United Samaritan Foundation in Turlock. And they've been around for quite some time feeding the needy in our area. And they said, they, it's amazing how many meals a year this organization does. And so to be able to give them a thousand dollars that they could use anywhere that they needed, it felt really good because I mean, I would love to be able to give that much all the time, but times are tough right now. So to have UPL to, do it was wonderful and to get you know for them to get that recognition as well and to share it market agriculture is trying its best to work from top to bottom and bottom to top and uh, the growers like you are very important to have your credibility put out there and to tell your story and i'm delighted that you're doing so with us we have a, a website i believe that people can go to to nominate for allies for agriculture uh, alliesforagriculture.com. And if you would like to nominate someone on that website, the capability is there to do so. So maybe your brother nominated you, you know? <laughs> maybe not. Uh, 
He probably I, wouldn't nominate know. you because you'd have to travel too much. If, you know, you're going to leave the farm and he's going to be stuck there, you know, because you're going to go on the road. Oh, I, you know, I was like, and that's the thing about like going out and speaking, like I still have farm work to do. Like I can't, I can't bail on him. <laughs> you know, we have a great partnership. That's it's all about respect, respect for your partner, your family and your land. Christine Griffithly, thank you very much for being with us. You're the winner of the Allies for Agriculture and Almond Grower in the Central Valley of California. We learned a great deal today. So thank you for helping us. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to The Root of the Matter, sponsored by UPL. New episodes will be available every other Monday on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Have a great day.